You know, last night we, obviously it was New Year's Eve, and so hopefully you guys didn't stay up too late. I managed to stay up till midnight. But one of the things we did is we went around the table with our kid, around the living room with our kids, and we talked about what did you hope, what, what were you hoping for for next year? What are your goals? What are you longing for? And then as we were doing that, I found my way like that typical vortex is YouTube into a series of all, a video of all of the ball drops since 1972. And it was just on repeat going ball drop, three seconds later, ball drop, three seconds later, ball drop, three seconds later. And it occurred to me as you think about that, that the cycle of New Year's Eve is no sooner do we make resolutions we identify hopes, we identify longings, then 12 months later, we're right back in the same place that we were, right? If we're honest with ourselves that right underneath the surface of our hopes, of our longings, of the goals we set for ourselves, is a gnawing in our soul. The hope itself actually points to the gnawing because it's our intent to try to do something about it. This is gonna be the year that I scratch the itch. So what the Bible describes that gnawing in your soul as is shame. And so the question we're going to be answering together today is, how does Christ meet you in your shame? To answer that, we're going to be taking a look at Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. Just a heads up, there's some of the thickest verses in the Bible. So we're going to be doing a lot of work really quickly. I'll do my best. But uh, there's probably multiple series worth of stuff just in these uh, little verses. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Isaiah 43. If not, um, I think you should have downloaded the Christchurch East app by now, or you guys are fancy, you have it behind me. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again, the question we're answering this morning is, how does Christ join you or meet you in the midst of your shame? You know, in this text, uh, two times the Lord says, fear not. It's clear that he's giving Judah a promise right into the midst of their fear. And one of the things that's interesting about fear is what undergirds it is shame. I'll walk you through the cycle for a second. But as soon as what you're afraid of, where our fear comes from, is the idea that we're alone or we're isolated. That the things that are around us that are big are bigger than we are and we know it, but there's no one in it with us. The reason we feel that way is because we feel unloved. The reason we feel unloved is because we feel unlovely. That's the cycle that Judah finds herself in. We'll talk about that in a second. But the tricky thing about shame is this, is it's in your story. And the thing about your story is you can't escape it. 
You know, the Lord made you embodied. He made you finite. He made you right where you are. That means you can't be anywhere else. That as soon as shame has made its way into your story, you can hide from it. You can ignore it. You can fake it, but you can't escape it. It's always there. That's the gnawing that we all feel uh, day after day or year after year. You know, in his book, uh, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson talks about shame in three ways. He says that shame, he defines it as the feeling that I am bad. Not I've done something bad, but that I intrinsically in my person, I am bad. He goes on to describe it as the radar of imminent abandonment. What that means is that what shame is in a good sense is because I feel unlovely, I'm now aware of the fact that the relationships around me are about to ghost. As soon as I have become messy, what's going to happen is I'll become abandoned. And so we have the feeling inside us. And then he describes shame as a hurricane that goes off inside our mind or our soul or our heart. You know, when uh, Puerto Rico got hit by the hurricane a few years ago um, and it cut them off from the infrastructure. So they were isolated as people. They were cut off from resources. That's what he's describing, is that shame isolates you in two ways. It literally cuts you off from yourself. Your brain stops being able to integrate the way it's meant to. And also, it cuts you off from other people because you anticipate that they're going to abandon you, and so you ghost them. See how that works? See, the danger of... Uh, sin and shame is that it inverts everything. You know, the original sin, you guys are familiar with Genesis 3, but creatures who were made to flourish in dependence, what are they goaded into doing? Is declaring independence, that life would come from pursuing the things of death, right? The world gets flipped upside down. And then what happens as a consequence of that downstream is that sin and with it shame ends up inverting the equation of where love comes from, right? You know, the, the thing that we're made for, you're wired up for the face of God. And from the face of God, you're meant to find joy in being loved, except no sooner does sin hit, then what does it do? It leads into accusation and guilt, right? You, you start wrestling with, I can't, I feel what I just did. And as soon as you feel what you just did, it grabs your attention. And now you start focusing on what you've done and defining yourself by it. As soon as that happens, shame has won. That is literally the term where shame has been birthed. All it's doing is focusing you on who you are and saying who you are is equal to what you've done. And by the way, what you've done is not good. You go further into the cycle, sin, I'm going to give you an, uh, an example here in a second, but sin produces guilt. Guilt produces this feeling of ugliness because the more I stare at myself, I realize I didn't do that once, but I do it all the time. And that's not just a, const that's not just a happenstance, it's a fruit of something deeper in me. And so I slide into this feeling of ugliness and then as I stare at my ugliness, I believe, man, love comes from being lovely. You see, the equation's been flipped over. And as soon as I think that love comes from being lovely, 
Now I am absolutely certain that I am unlovable. And so the next thing means my messiness with all of its cost means abandonment. And then what does abandonment mean? Terror. Because life is hard. And shame itself says I'm not sufficient for what's going on around me. And it also causes me to be alone. And so I am at the mercy of whatever the vortex that I'm living inside of is. So what I wanted you to see right out of the gates is that the sneaky or pernicious thing of shame and sin in particular is that it flips the equation of love upside down. It tells you that you're loved based on being lovely and who you are is equal to what you've done. And the reason it does that, the way it does is by getting you to focus on it through guilt. But the reason it does it is because it wants you to take your eyes off of Christ. See, this is exactly where Judah finds herself. The reason the Lord has to give them promises not to fear is because if you've been tracking along in the series, you'll remember that Hezekiah has a pattern of all of the kings before him, goes and makes, um, at least considers making a covenant with Babylon. We're pretty sure he did. And in the covenant with Babylon, the Lord responds, we could say promise, but sentences them to exile says, you're headed back. He brought them into the land of promise and out of slavery. And he says, you're headed back out of the land of promise and back into pagan slavery. You see that? He's not heading them back into Egypt, but he's sending them back into where he brought them out of. That's exactly what they're facing into, that if you're Judah, you're going, the judges, we, we did this in the wilderness. We did this during the judges, we did this during the kings that followed David, Solomon did it, now we're, we're doing it again. Like I can't seem to break loose from this pattern in my life where I ghost the Lord and I end up in exile. And so intrinsically panic is hitting. And yet the Lord speaks directly into their panic with a promise. So before we get into that, I want to pause and ask you a question. What was gnawing in your soul last night? You know what I'm talking about? Like all your goals and your hopes and your longings, if you were paying attention to them, they were circling around something like a drain. What was it? Can you name it? Underneath that, what is it about that that scares you? What is it about that that tells you you're unlovely and therefore you're not loved? Again, that's exactly where Judah finds herself. And yet, the good news is the Lord speaks directly into this uh, with a promise. You know, um, we live out of the beach and so... If uh, the swell is really gnarly, you have to, I'm not a surfer, but I've learned this. Um, to get out there, you have to have three points of contact. You know this, right? Like if, if the waves are really rocky and you just try to have two points of contact, it'll knock you off. But if you can maintain three points of contact, it's stable and you can stay afloat and all of that. That the Lord speaks into the shame of Judah with one promise, but in three layers. And the first layer, look at verse two. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not over." 
overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Those pictures of flood and flame and burning, they're both general and particular, but they're the images of exile. He's saying, the exact thing that you feel shame over, the thing that has triggered shame, when its consequences hit, both generally and particularly, you know what the thing is. I don't know what your thing is. I know what mine is, but you know what yours is. When it hits, he's saying it won't overwhelm you. It won't sweep you away or consume you. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say you, it won't not hit. He didn't say it might hit. He stops a little bit short of saying it will hit, but he says when it hits. He's speaking directly into your feelings of being wrong and the consequences that come from it and say even when the floodwaters get this high, they won't sweep you away. Even when the consequences burn you, it won't consume you. And you go, man, that's a beautiful promise. I love it. Except if you knew my story, you know that I am insufficient. And as soon as the floodwaters hit, that's exactly what happens as I get swept away. Do you know whose narrative that is? That's shame. That's exactly the story shame wants to tell you. Is what does shame want to do? Is focus you on who you are and what you've done and use it to measure your sense of security and love. And so you go, you know, the only way that promise could be true is if it weren't dependent on me, if I weren't alone. And so the Lord gives a second layer, the second point of contact on top of the, the rockiness of the situation. Do you see what he says? I will be with you. Do you know why you can be sure that even the consequences of your sin, even the fruit of the thing you feel shame about is going to work out for your good is because you're not alone. The Lord has promised that he will be with you, not until the flood hits, not until the fire hits, but exactly when the flood hits, that he himself will sustain you and carry you through it. And you go, that's great. Except if you'd known what I'd done. Because if you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't have made that promise. And what exactly happens if you know about my ugliness, my story has told me is abandonment. Right? There's no way for this. This is a great promise, but you would have to somehow have some other opinion of what love is and what it means to be lovely and where love comes from. Do you see what the Lord says? Verse four. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. You know, when he says precious, he doesn't mean like cute and fragile. <laughs> you know, like the sweet little puppy that all of our neighbors, we got like seven puppies in our neighborhood. This, it was crazy. When he says precious, he's saying of inestimable value. Like you could, God himself would call you 
worth more than what he could assign a value to. And he's saying that not only are you precious, but the reason you're worth it, the reason you're valued is because you're honored. There's a dignity to you. There's a substance to you. Now be careful for a second about what that substance is, what it means, but just hang on to that for a second. There is a reason God loves you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or the way the Hebrew says it, mine you are. You know, when a little kid gets a new toy for Christmas and then one of the other kids grabs it, he walks over and he goes, mine. You know? It's exactly what the Lord is describing. That no sooner does shame walk up into your story and the Lord walks over to you and your story and says, mine, and takes it back to himself. Do you know why the Lord loves you? First off, we'll just start at like, are you loved? Yes, you're loved. Do you know who loves you? God loves you. Do you know why he loves you? It's not because your heart is super special. I'm not being like, pejorative when I say that. I'm just saying all the stuff in our culture around like get in touch with yourself and be your best you and find your best life now and all of that stuff. What the Bible says is your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But do you know what he says that the value on you is? I have called you by name. In other words, I have called you by my name. Like when we're out in public and I say Bigelow kids, come on. I haven't called them by their name. I've called them by my name. And it separates them from all of the rest of the kids. He says, I have placed my own name on you. And I'm making my glory known in your story. Do you see what he says about how he glorifies himself? What what is he so intent on making sure that the nations know about who he is? The second, like the the, the middle part of verse 3. For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He says, it's important to me. The reason I've chosen you is it's important to me that the nations and the cosmos and the fake gods around you know that I am entirely unlike anyone you've ever trusted, known, or loved. I'm separate from them. I'm not like them. All of the things that have produced your story, that produce shame, I'm not like them. In what way am I not like them? Do you know when bad hits, what the story you've learned is, you get abandoned, right? When hard hits or messy hits, People ghost. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The way the Lord makes himself known is not by keeping you from hard stuff, but from saving you in the midst of it. That's your value. 
That's why you matter to him. Because he has assigned his own worth, the glory of his own name. The way I will be known publicly is by how I play out my story and your story. That's what he's saying. The way your story goes is the way I will be known. How much are you worth to the Lord? What do you think? What's precious mean? You know, the housing crisis has been crazy. No, it's not a crisis. It's a, like a, is it, is it a bubble? Whatever, it's awesome. If you own a home, it's awesome. If you don't own a home, it's terrible. Um, but through it, what's been happening is as people have tried to cash out, you hit this awkward point where the appraisal comes in and somebody's made you an offer and yet you're waiting to see if it'll appraise for what they offered. And it can produce anger because you can feel the tension between like, yeah, but this guy wants to pay for it, but you say it's only worth, like, I don't understand what the disconnect is. And the tension you're feeling there is just the logical reality that something is worth whatever the highest bidder is willing to pay for it. Right? You're like, I will pick a number, but that guy wants to pay me 350 for it, but you say it's worth 300. Where'd you get that? He says it's worth 350. You know how much the Lord says you're worth? Look at verse three. When he says, I give Egypt, he, another way that could be translated is, I gave Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Cush and Seba, just so you know, are the outer parts of what was then Egypt. So he's saying, I, I gave the whole totality of Egypt for you. In other words, he's saying, you've been here before. And last time you were in slavery to pagan kings, do you know what I did? I took the sole superpower of the earth, which I painstakingly and patiently nurtured for generations. And to accomplish and effect your redemption, do you know what I did? I burned it to the ground. That's how much you matter to me. And then he goes on to say, because you matter to me, I give men in return for you. This is verse four. Peoples in exchange for your life. What he's saying is you're headed back into slavery, but do you know what? Not just Babylon. If all the nations of the earth and all of their kings and the cosmos itself stood between me and your redemption, do you know what I would do? I would burn it all down is what I would do. He's saying, you're getting ready to go be enslaved by a bunch of pagans, but I'll be with you. And all you have to do is look back and trust the promise forward that I promise you, this is not the end of your story because I'm in it with you and I will affect your redemption. You know, this is a hypothetical. He's saying like, if that happened, if the nation stood between you and your redemption, I would give them in a heartbeat. Do you know what God gave for your redemption? Not the kings of the nations. Not the blood of the kings of the nations. 
the blood of God the Son. The righteous one. The one who is the author of life. The one the scriptures describe as upholding those very cosmos by the word of his power. Do you know how much you're worth it to God? The blood of Christ. You might say, how does it apply to me? I'll give you a couple ways in just a second. But. You know, if you've been in my house, one of the places that shame hits hardest and fastest is parenting. Y'all can laugh, it's okay. Thanks, yeah. And the reason it hits so fast is because you, you know when a child comes into the world, like, man, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sufficient to raise them, but I'm gonna try hard. You know, I'm gonna try hard. And then they're messy. And like 72 hours into it, you feel the urge to yell at them. Would you just stop screaming? But you can hold it in for like three years because you know they're just a baby, right? But by the time they're three, you start yelling. And as soon as you yell, you go, I can't, I just, I can't believe, why did I just explode at a three-year-old? That's guilt. And what do you start doing? You start perseverating on the fact that you yelled at the three-year-old until you become convinced, you know, that's, that's, that's not what I did. That's who I am. I'm someone who yells at a three-year-old. That's shame. And then what happens? I'm going to ruin my kids. I don't have enough money to pay for all the counseling that they're going to need. Y'all are laughing. I'm dead serious. That's fear. Because you think you're alone in your parenting. Because you think whether Jesus is willing to join you in your parenting or not is based on whether you're lovely as a parent or not. Do you know what the promise of Christ is? If you flip open to the beginning of Mark 1, just go back one sentence. It's the very last words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28. It's like right before they're about to feel his absence. Do you know what it says? Behold. I mean, look. Pay attention. You are going to feel like I'm far away. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Who's he say he's going to be with? Obviously, those boys who like had their act all cleaned up and were serious about him and did their devotions every day. Do you know who he's talking to when he said that? Peter, who denied that he even knew him. And Thomas, who said, I don't care what you boys tell me unless I stick my fingers in his side, it's not possible for that dude to have climbed out of the grave. But ex exactly in the moment where they're reeling from having abandoned the one who conquered demon armies, he says, I will be with you. It's exactly into the shame that makes you feel like you're separate the Lord says, 
you're exactly the one that I'm with. Do you see when he says he's with you? Ah, the mountaintops, of course. Every time you get, you know, we've been playing Super Mario because we got a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. And like every time you get, you die, if you manage to make it to the flag, you get to start back over at the flag, right? But you still got to like climb your way back out of it. And certainly it's like, okay, the the Lord is like faithful. Jesus will be there. Uh, but when you get back to the mountaintop, the game will still be on, right? It's not game over yet. You see what he says? I will be with you always. Not except for the times that have produced your shame, exactly in the midst of your shame. I will be with you. Exactly when you feel far from me is exactly when I'm not far from you. You go, that's great, but I'm telling you, if you knew my story, I'm gonna wear you out. I will wear you out. Your faithfulness is no match for my fickleness. Which by the way, different sermon series, different sermon at least, the real question is, is your fickleness a match for his faithfulness? But what our heart feels is, can you really endure my flakiness? Do you see what he says? Again, I'm exegeting the end of Matthew 28, but he says, as long as you keep your bootstraps up, do laundry every day, read your Bible four times, pray like Daniel, and I'll be with you. He says, even to the end of the age. Do you know what that means? He's saying, until this epoch in redemptive history ends, meaning until you no longer need redemption, until you're no longer capable of shame, until you're no longer able to feel my absence, until that day comes when you can't sin and all you see is my face, I will be with you. There is no place that you can outrun who Christ is and what he's done and how he feels about you. How should we respond? You know, I grew up in the, uh, the part of the country where like every good t-shirt got better when you cut the sleeves off of it. You know what I'm talking about? Thank you, yes. You all know what I'm talking about. And see, what's funny about the clothes we wear is that, uh, and maybe this will connect with you because of like New Year's resolutions, but one of the things we always, a lot of us want to do is like lose a little bit of weight. And what we really mean by that is like, I want my clothes to fit better, right? I don't want to have to go buy a whole new wardrobe. I want to, I want to look better in, in, my, in the stuff that I've already owned. And we have this clear sense that our wardrobe needs to match our person. Except if you grew up like I did, what you do is as soon as it doesn't fit, you cut it up. You deform it so that it fits you instead of you learning to fit it. Like, what are you talking about? You know what repentance looks like? Repentance looks like conforming your feelings to the promises of Christ 
conforming your feelings so that they fit his promises. Not deforming his promises to fit your feelings. Do you know what I mean by that? Exactly in the midst of your shame, what shame wants to tell you is you are unloved because you are unlovely. Do you know what Jesus says? You are unequivocally loved. And you know how you know? How you know? The one who's capable of climbing out of the grave climbed into it. The humiliation of Christ is joining you in your shame is how you know you will not be separated from Christ. The second way is, uh, you know, in the verse, it says, let me just say one more thing about that. Sorry. Um, it's just worth geeking out on. And I know I'm going long, but uh, in verse one, when it says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. He's talking about the same person there. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know, the man Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob becomes, has his name changed Israel. During the time of the story where he's Jacob, he's a knucklehead. Kevin DeYoung calls him a trickster, like lots of good words for him. And if you're Jacob in your story, you have both of those. Your shame follows you. I can't believe I did that to Esau. And what he's saying is, I created you. But then when it says formed, he's going a step deeper, like saying, I'm the, I'm the one who carefully, I didn't just preside over the writing of your story. I wrote the story myself with its pen strokes. Except the story I wrote is the story of Israel. It's the story of my promise. What am I saying there? When the pain hits from the things you've done, the way to make meaning out of it is not to run to how you feel about it, but to run to what Christ is doing in the midst of it. Is to ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing? Why have you permitted this? Why didn't you edit this out of the story? He could have. There's tons of sin that he vetoed in your life, just so you know. So he's to the second thing. He says in here, it says, fear not, fear not. Another way that could be translated is you must not fear. In the Christian life, fear, it can sometimes feel like I should never be afraid of anything, but that's nonsense. You'd have to be not human or Jesus would have to have come back for that to happen. The question is not whether you feel fear, it's what do you do with your fear? And what he's saying here is when fear goes off, you must not give into it. You must not get sucked back into shame. What do you do? He says, run to me, run to Christ. You know, sometimes we treat fear like a report card. Like, oh man, I, I, that's, F is for fear. <laughs> but it's a dashboard. And what fear is, is the simple fact that you feel separated from the one who's supposed to love you and is big enough to save you. But what does the promise of Christ say? You're never separated from his love or his capacity or his agency in saving you. And so exactly when you feel fear, that's the trigger 
or the alarm going off to say, run to Christ. Third one, and we'll end with this. You know, so much of the human life, especially if you're a 21st century American, is living for being loved. Like everything about the way we structure our life, the brands we wear, the jobs we have, the, the, all of it has to do with trying to present ourselves as lovely for the sake of winning lovedness. What the gospel says is that you live from lovedness, not for lovedness. You live from Christ before you ever live for Christ. In other words, rather than the pursuit of love shaping the way you live, the fact that you are loved shapes the way you live. What I wanted you to see this morning is that shame is an unavoidable part of the human life. It's because our very first parents collapsed into sin, but so have you. And the consequence of sin is that it sucks you into the feeling of an inverted equation where you're loved based on what you've done and and what you've done is ugly. But what the gospel shows is that for the sake of his own glory, God loves you in Christ for his own purposes. The way you know that you will be saved, the way you know you are loved, the way you know you are secured is it is not about you. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you join us even in our shame. That, Lord, you step down into humiliation, not to leave us there, but to join us there and carry us out of there. And so, Lord, I pray for Christ Church East. Pray for Christ Church Beaches, that you'd make both of our churches a place where we find our rest in you and our joy in you, that we would become people who live from you before we ever try to live for you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.